Welcome to BSD Talk, number 240. It's Tuesday, April 29, 2014. I'll be returning to BSD Can again this year. Hope I see some of you there. All right, all I have is an interview for you today, so here it is. Well, we have George Neville Neal back again on BSD Talk. Thanks for coming on the show to talk a little bit about time. No problem. Good to talk to you again, Will. So, for a lot of people time, as far as computers are concerned, is just the clock somewhere on your screen. And like for me, my time on my computer changes once a minute, as far as I'm concerned, from my basic desktop perspective. But obviously, there's a lot more going on with time. So in general, how do computers, maybe we just start with a standalone computer, how do computers know what time it is? So one of the things that makes dealing with time on computers interesting is uh, something that most people don't know is that your wristwatch is more accurate than a computer clock in a server. The crystal that's used to keep time in any desktop or laptop or what have you, any piece of computer equipment, unless it's specifically built as a clock, is uh, pretty poor. They're generally cheap, 10 cent a piece or less, poorly cut quartz crystals, and they will gain or lose more time over a year than a standard wristwatch, including like a wind-up wristwatch. So the way the system actually knows what time it is, is there is, you know, a counter going over at some frequency, which, you know, there are hardware drivers that take that and turn that into something that the system can can understand. There are various sources of time on uh, various servers. It's fairly common now to use a register on Intel hardware called the timestamp counter, TSC. There's a single instruction to read that. That's kind of the cheapest, easiest way to get time. But at its very base, um, the server has a really cheap, not very good um, crystal that's driving its clock forward. And all kinds of things can affect the time. So uh, how hot the room is and if the temperature changes over time in the room, the clock will run faster or slower. So there's all kinds of sources of inaccuracies uh, for computer-based clocks. Now, if all you care about is you know keeping track of minutes, then you're probably okay for the most part, although you will see over a year that your uh, desktop's clock, if it's not regulated by something external, will be out of sync with the rest of the world. Now, for a lot of, you know, there's a pretty common network security protocol where as long as clocks are within five to 10 minutes, things don't break. And when I think about cron or at, those are things that really only operate, you know, on, on some pretty rough time schedules although you normally don't want to skip. Why would people want, or maybe a better way to ask would be, what are some common use cases for time that's more accurate than a minute or so? So when you think about even something as basic now as uh, companies that are serving web content, um, nobody's serving all of that content from a single server. So you know we all know that everybody's logging not, not everything, but they're logging a great deal of the traffic that comes into their web servers. And they're trying to correlate, or they may be trying to correlate actions between multiple machines. So even in something where you're serving web content or having web transactions, it really matters 
to people, at least down to the sub-second already, you know, that action A happened before or after uh, action B. And there's a really famous paper by Leslie Lamport, who most people think of as the guy who wrote LaTeX, as opposed to the guy who figured out distributed systems. There's a paper called Time Clocks and Distributed Systems, he wrote in 1978, which talks all about how distributed systems really have to care about time. And the more traffic you have and the more events you have per unit time, depending on what your distributed application is, the finer grain time you're going to need between servers so that you know when something hits your front end and then hits your database server and then hits some other system, uh, you'll be able to actually know when things happened to before. Often with time, we're trying to answer the question, which I always like to think of as, as the mother's question, who did what to whom and when? You know, two children are fighting and usually the parent wants to know, well, who started it? Well, if you don't have relatively uh, well-synchronized clocks and you've got more than one system, then you're not going to know who started it. And that's a problem that needs to be solved in a lot of areas, not just sort of uh, lab environments or environments where you know people now talk about things down to the microsecond, which we can talk about later. But you even care you know, within seconds just to try and debug, say, you know, web servers. So to get some accuracy beyond your BIOS clock, or if you have a different system without a BIOS, I guess the network time protocol is probably the more common way to do it. Could you describe how that works? So because you have an inaccurate clock on your system or systems, you need an external reference. And there are various forms of external references. You could have a GPS device that gets very accurate time from the GPS satellites uh, in low Earth orbit. And those satellites all put out a very good time signal that can be correlated, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that's kind of an expensive way to you know, regulate a clock. And so years ago, before GPS, people developed network time protocols. But within a network time protocol domain, you have a hierarchy of clocks. So in NTP, these are referred to by stratum. A stratum zero clock is the best possible clock. It's the most accurate. Usually this is an extremely expensive piece of equipment run by someone like the uh, NIST. And, you know, it's using, well, even higher quality than rubidium, but a, a, a very stable piece of crystal that oscillates at a very stable uh, frequency, because what you need to have before you can do anything with stable time is stable frequency. So the problem in most server-based crystals is that you know, they say that they fluctuate, that they put out a, a wave at you know, so many megahertz or whatever you know, the rating is. But that's actually not completely accurate. It'll be slightly slower or slightly faster. So what you need is a piece of equipment like a rubidium clock or one of these cesium th uh, clocks that has an extremely stable frequency where the distance between the peaks remains really constant and really steady no matter what the temperature is or what else is going on. And so in the network time protocol, you have strata of clocks. And so you've got stratum zero clocks. And if you have a clock connected to a stratum zero clock over the internet, then the next level down is stratum one, stratum two, stratum three, stratum four, et cetera. Uh, and people have been running these clocks for many years and each clock at each strata can inquire of the clocks above it 
you know, what time it is. And so what's happening with any network time protocol is that a client, uh, let's say it's your server, uh, you've got a co-load machine and it asks its nearest NTP clock, what time is it? Well, that seems like a relatively easy question uh, for humans because we frequently will turn to someone and say, hey, what time is it? But in a computer network, when you ask what time it is, there's a lag, there's a delay. So your computer will ask the next higher strata clock, what time is it? And so it'll send a packet. And then the clock will respond, it's this time. But in the amount of time it took the packet to get from the client to the server and back, time has moved forward. And the question is, how far forward has it moved? So one of the things that makes network time complicated is actually estimating that round trip. And everything that's done in time protocols to make them more accurate is all about improving that measurement. And that's called the delay. So you, you really want to have that delay be as constant as possible because if there's jitter in the delay, if that changes over time, or if the delay is asymmetric, then you won't be able to make a good estimate. Because if I, as the client, send a packet and say, what time is it? And two milliseconds, that packet returns. And it's like, okay, well, it's, it was this time when I timestamped it. So one millisecond each way. If I know that that one millisecond is constant, I can remove the one millisecond from the number and I get a really accurate time. And then my offset from the other clock is constant. And then my time is, is good. But that never happens in a network. I mean, just do a ping of a server and watch the ping times change as the packets go back and forth, and you can see how much jitter there is in the network. And the more jitter there is, the less accurate your time is going to be relative to the better clock. And that's the part that seems like magic to me, that somehow computers are able to figure out these varying delays over time and have something relatively accurate. Now, are we talking about accuracy down to the second or greater than a second with the network time protocol? So... The network time protocol can actually be far more accurate than a second. You can get down to milliseconds on a network that's not too congested. The more congested the network is with other traffic, then the more jitter you're going to have in your measurements between uh, whatever your client is and the other machines. But you can easily get down into the milliseconds. It's when you get below milliseconds that it can be more difficult. And NTP, one of the configuration uh, parameters is how often you pull and how often you ask what time it is. Now, of course... If you have a large network asking what time it is very often or frequently with a, a unicast protocol, you can overwhelm the clock or you can overwhelm the next layer. And you don't want to do that. That's you're kind of dosing your own clock. And that also can result you know, and that, that also can give you really poor results. So maybe we could talk a little bit about network time protocol etiquette, because when you look at some of the higher strata clocks, Sometimes you see something about either asking before or letting them know that you're going to, or I guess what's sort of the protocol among sort of the big clock operators for using them as a time source? So the NTP resource, the network time protocol resource, which has been around for quite a number of years, is, is really run on a volunteer basis. There was a famous case where uh, someone who was running a time service in Europe, one of the... I think it was one of the wireless router vendors, one of these AP vendors, they shipped all of their APs with the default being this one little person in Europe uh, who then went and had to sue them to stop doing that. Uh, but for the most part, it's a, it's a volunteer effort. And you know, NTP was developed in a time 
uh, on the internet where it was much more collaborative. And while there were bad actors, there were a small, smaller number of people on the network. And so those bad actors didn't have uh, the ability to cause as much uh, havoc in the modern internet where, you know, we know that there's been amplification attacks against NTP because it's a fairly open protocol. Uh, and it uses UDP, which doesn't require anyone to, you know, that doesn't require a full TCP setup that people have begun to lock down their NTP servers a lot more. And so it's important to verify and ask, you know, whether or not you can use a clock. Now, of course, if you're just setting up your own system, so for instance, if you install FreeBSD, the default NTP conf file actually has a set of FreeBSD NTP servers, which have been pre-vetted. And those, there's a a pool of those, a large pool of those that are shared and you'll, because of, because they're set up using AnyCast, wherever you are in the world, you'll get sort of the three kind of closest to you network wise. And those people have already been pre-vetted. Uh, similarly with the commercial operating systems, if you look at um, Windows has this and uh, Mac OS 10 has this where you'll look at the, you know, set up my network time thing. And it's always time.apple.com or something similar for, for Microsoft where they've got a set of servers out there in the world that are already willing to serve you time. And you mentioned some attacks, and maybe this would be of more interest to people that are setting up servers than clients, but sort of getting back to um, good time protocol etiquette, if you are going to run a time server and expose it to the internet, what are some things that you should do to protect yourself from being part of an amplification attack and, and you know hurting other people in the process? So actually, there's a whole bunch of stuff uh, on the internet looking at this. And if you just search for NTP amplification attack, you'll find the things you need to do to lock yourself down. And at this point, people will contact you. So uh, I've been involved with some people who had some open time servers and, you know, their ISP said, hey, your machine is being used in an amplification attack because it's it's extremely obvious. But if you want to actually run an open server, it's probably best to just go online and look up those. The problem for NTP is that the protocol runs on top of the UDP protocol instead of TCP. And while TCP can also be used in different types of attacks, UDP protocols, because you can constantly fake your return IP address, that means amplification attacks are really trivial. NTP, DNS, both of these have had amplification attacks running in the last couple of years. So there's stuff out there to just tell you how to to lock it down. Most of the... Network time protocol servers that I've had to deal with are within corporate firewalls and are not made open to the public. Um, So I don't actually work as much with the public NTP infrastructure. So I've always thought of at least Unix time as being the number of seconds that have elapsed since a particular point in time. Is it accurate to say that it is counted in seconds? I mean, if we're talking about time that has a greater accuracy than a second, is the actual structure within the kernel capable of counting in smaller increments than one second? Sure. The, the kernel is basically able to count down to nanoseconds and actually could count smaller than that. If you are a C programmer and you look at uh, the various uh, time structures, uh, it used to be that you, had, you would get seconds and microseconds back from the kernel. Now you can get seconds and nanoseconds back from the kernel. Uh, so we will, you know, FreeBSD will give you uh, time in nanoseconds, and most people deal with time in, in nanoseconds. So this, I think, is when it starts to get 
really fascinating. When you look at time or you talk to people that have a need for time accuracy down to the nanosecond, which I think is something that's hard to sort of imagine. I mean, I, don't, I think that's faster than the blink of the eye. So what are some of the applications for this nanosecond time accuracy and what protocols do you use to establish time at that accuracy? So one of the things I've worked on uh, for a number of years is the precision time protocol. And the precision time protocol was originally designed for things like factory floors. So we weren't talking about nanoseconds. We were talking about microseconds. You know, you're coordinating two robots. You're coordinating a huge number of measurements that are showing up at multiple machines. Uh, and in those kinds of situations, you do need certainly better than seconds for time. And you probably need better than milliseconds and you start to get down to nanoseconds. I don't know of anyone, certainly there are the financial uh, institutions that would like to have nanosecond accuracy. And as far as I know, none of them have down to actual nanoseconds. They're probably down to microseconds at this point. Because they, like the case I mentioned earlier, but more extreme, they're taking in these data streams of uh, financial transactions that happen in microseconds, and they're taking them into multiple servers, and they need to be able to correlate that data. Uh, but there are other applications as well. The electrical grid, for instance, there is an entire specification, subspecification for the precision time protocol that talks about what parameters you can set for using it in the electrical grid. Because when you need to synchronize power, which is coming out at 60 hertz uh, from various power stations, those all need to be in sync. And if they're not, very bad things happen in the real world. Uh, so one of the places where you're getting very accurate time certainly down to microseconds, uh, and finer is in electrical grids. Uh, another place you see this is in telecommunications. So you know, your uh, cell phone, keeping your cell phone connected to the cell phone network requires that all of the towers within a certain area have pretty well um, synchronized clocks uh, in order to, to affect these handoffs and, and to deal with those problems. So there's actually a, several large areas where uh, precision time is necessary. And that's where the precision time protocol, which is actually an IEEE standard, IEEE 1588. Uh, there are two standards. There was one written in 2002 that was clearly written by people who understood time and not network protocols. And that was revised in 2008 by people who understood network protocols, which was good. Uh, and there's currently a revision underway. I'm uh, monitoring that because I work on the open source uh, precision time protocol daemon. Will this new revision be backwards compatible? Because I believe the first and the second weren't, right? The first and the second are not backwards compatible. I believe that is the goal with this uh, third revision. It turns out that uh, IEEE standards must be revised every five years or at least looked at every five years. And so that's what caused the current look. I think a lot of the things that we'll see coming out of the new one are things like security. So the PTP, the Precision Time Protocol, has no security uh, involved in it. And that has mostly worked out because the only people who are using it are using it within relatively well-protected networks. Uh, people don't run public PTP services. They're meant to synchronize a large group of machines, say, in cell towers or in power towers or in a co-location facility, but they're contained within a network. Uh, whereas, you know, NTP is very a very public internet protocol. PTP is not. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have security. 
And so I, I think there'll be some security features there. And there is some discussion about how to make the PTP protocol more accurate to give us, you know, finer grain time uh, amongst a group of machines. And that's, you know, their IEEE standards are done via sub-working groups. So there's a working group on security and there's a working group on performance, et cetera, et cetera, uh, within this. And that process started in 2013 and it, it is continuing now. So I guess you could say that the new time protocols are probably going to be going through something similar to DNS, where we've realized the importance of DNSSEC, and so time also is going to need that level of authentication and just making sure you're getting the right packets from the right people. I think so. And it's interesting because, of course, one of the things that you want with a time protocol is you want it to be extremely lightweight. You don't want to do a lot of processing because every bit of processing you do can introduce jitter. The enemy of good time, uh, good network time, is uh, jitter. And jitter is the variance in measurement of samples. So, you know, the earlier example where I said, well, it's two milliseconds round trip between a host. Well, if it's two and then three and then two and then three and then four and then two and then three, et cetera, uh, that's jitter. And any source of jitter is going to cause the time protocol to be less accurate. So one of the things that people have been doing is introducing into network hardware uh, specific registers to grab time at a very low level uh, when the NIC card, the actual hardware, sees a PTP packet going by. So Intel NICs have this hardware. Uh, there's rudimentary support in various drivers for this, and I've been looking at that for FreeBSD. Uh, SolarFlare, which is a 10 gig NIC maker, has that. Chelsea O. You know, people have been looking at that. And that's just to remove the jitter introduced when a network packet reaches the interface and then goes through the driver and the kernel, et cetera, all the way up to user space, there's a huge amount of jitter introduced uh, on both ends of the measurement by that. And so jitter is just the enemy of, of good time. And so anything that can be done to reduce that is great. And the problem is if you put in security protocols, I mean, if you could imagine something where you had to validate every packet. Well, how long is it going to take the security protocol to run on every packet to check summit or whatever you decide to do? Uh, that's clearly going to be the enemy of good time. And so it's going to be a very interesting balance and it's going to be very interesting to see what the working group comes up with. So I imagine, and I have no idea whether they're similar or not, but I think about, you know, microscopes. And as you try and look at smaller and smaller and smaller things, it actually becomes harder <laughs> to the point where, you know, what you're trying to measure is smaller than the light that you're trying to measure it with. I'm trying to figure out how you tell if clocks are accurate to such small amounts, because you can't watch the screen, you know, like if you're trying to put two numbers next to each other to compare, or you can't even refresh the screen fast enough to show, you know, the count of time. So how do you even know that you're accurate? down to the nanosecond. So one of the things that people do, and, and this is what people who are taking time from NIST and people like that are doing. So you have an accurate reference. So I, I, was, I mentioned earlier about having like a rubidium uh, crystal oscillator. So you have a very stable reference of time, and that tells you, you know, how long a second is or how long a millisecond is because you know, we all think we know how long a millisecond is or how long any period of time is. But that's really a measure of a vibration, right? And so if you want to look at down to nanoseconds, you're generally going to have 
specialized lab equipment that you connect up to a machine to compare the internals of the machine to this known reference. Uh, and people make these known references and they're very expensive. One of the things that's interesting is you, you mentioned the, you know, with microscopes, smaller and smaller and smaller things you want to look at. Um, you'll note that the price of those microscopes goes up very quickly. The same thing is true in time. Uh, one of the things that's hardest to explain, I think, to people who don't really understand how time works and time protocols work is I have a very typical interaction with uh, clients and customers who are looking at time and they say, I, I want time to be absolutely accurate. And my next question is, how much money do you have? Because every increase in the order of magnitude of accuracy is roughly equivalent to an increase by order of magnitude of money. You know, if you're looking at, say, one of these, you know, a, a good, what we call a grandmaster, the grandmaster is something that would be a stratum one or so clock uh, with a really good crystal, you know, that might be $5,000. And if you want it to be an order of magnitude more accurate, then it's going to be $50,000. Uh, it really is this step function to increase the accuracy of the time that you can get. And it really depends on, on your, what you need. Uh, you know, if you're running experiments, you know, if you need an electron microscope, you need an electron microscope. And if you really need to know that something took a number of nanoseconds and you're going to need to have a really accurate external reference of some sort to see what the time looked like. So I'm trying to imagine you in front of the computer working on some C code for the precision time protocol daemon. And you make a few changes to the code. And then how do you, how do you know whether or not your changes in code skewed it a little bit? And, you know, I think from a, like a practical programmer standpoint, how do you know whether you broke it or made it better? So one of the things that I've added to the tool set for the Precision Time Protocol is a set of uh, graphing tools written in R, which is a statistical language, and a really great language for log processing. So... You know, the, the demon will log every second, every time it gets a packet, which is fairly often. In, in PTP, we send packets once every couple of seconds, uh, and they're multicast, which keeps the packet count down. So in the precision time protocol, the grandmaster will announce the time, you know, every couple of seconds. Now it's this time. Now it's this time. And then periodically, the clients will inquire of the grandmaster you know, how long did my packet take to get to you to make that measurement of what, what was my one-way delay, right? The one-way delay is that how long did the packet get, take to get to me? Um, and in the precision time protocol, we output log files constantly of this. And you can very easily, using these uh, tools written in R, you can graph the time. And what you're looking at is you're looking at the offset, uh, which means, you know, how far was I, how far off am I from the grandmaster? And then you're looking at the one-way delay. It is the one-way delay change. And that's how you can look at your jitter. And with time protocols, I don't know if this pun is intended, but it takes time. So you'll make a change in your lab environment. And then you've got to wait at least you know, 10 or 15 minutes, sometimes as much as an hour. Uh, if you have to restart things, you may have to wait an hour to get really close to where you care about time because it'll take it takes some time for the clocks to reconverge down to something close to milliseconds and then down to micros and then down to nanos. Uh, so what you'll do is you'll make a change and you'll uh, restart your software and you'll look at 
the graphs output from the log files. Uh, and that's how you can tell. And then there's a bunch of other things in the tools where um, not only, but graphing gives you a really good visual idea. It's a way of finding what's going on. And then uh, histograms. Uh, histograms are incredibly useful. How many of my measurements were outside of this particular spot? Uh, I spend a little bit of time whenever I'm working on this stuff talking to uh, far better mathematicians than myself, a particular woman engineer who I worked with, a woman developer, who's a great statistician. And I, and I would just say, this is the measurement I took. This is what I think it means. Uh, this is the limit of my understanding of the statistics. Am I doing the right thing? And you know, She's been very helpful. And that's pretty much it. You, you run the experiment and you look at the stats. So is PTP a FreeBSD thing or something that's portable across multiple operating systems? So it's portable to multiple operating systems. The, the website, it's up on SourceForge, so ptpd.sf.net. Uh, it's BSD two-clause license. Uh, so there's been a, a large number of people working on it uh, on and off over the years, as myself. Uh, Harlan Sten, who also works on NTP stuff. Uh, Wojciech Awarczyk, who's uh, been doing a lot of the rework lately. Uh, Stephen Cruiser, who I worked with at a company, Martin Bernicke, uh, Jan Brewer, Gail Mace, Alexander Van Kempen, Inaku Delgado, Rick Ratzel. Uh, and then the original two authors haven't worked on it in a number of years, but they're still in the copyright file. So Kendall Correll and Aidan Williams wrote the original version, uh, which was for PTPV1. And uh, so there's been quite a number of people working on it over the years. At the moment, there's pretty much three or four of us who do most of the work. It's Harlan, myself. Wojcik and uh, Jan, Ren and Nakli, I guess it's five of us, uh, who contribute on and off over the year. We're currently working on 2.4 of that. So the major revision follows the protocol version. So PTPD2 is always, uh, you know, version two of the protocol. And then we just rev the second number for our own revision. So I'm imagining for most people, installing this and running this wouldn't make much of a difference from what they could tell particularly because you need something really accurate for the grandmaster and most of us wouldn't even be using other services that would need to consume time at this accuracy? That's an interesting question. The real reason that most people wouldn't be installing it is if you don't have a, a grandmaster, if you don't have a need for it and you don't have a grandmaster, then you can run, you can actually set up a server as a grandmaster and you could have that server connected to GPS uh, there are various, you know, hobbyist-style GPS things that can plug into USB. And that would give you a pretty accurate, cheap Grandmaster. Uh, and then you could run as many clients as you wanted off of it. Um, you know, with a fairly powerful modern Intel machine, you know, thinking like a 2 or 3 gigahertz server-style or desktop-style machine, you could easily keep, you know, a couple hundred, a few hundred machines uh, in line down to milliseconds you know the question really becomes does it you know does it suit a need and it turns out there are more and more people who it does suit their need uh like i said you know most people don't think of say a web serving company needing this or someone who's doing web applications but more and more people are realizing that the more accurate their stats are you know the more money they can make as a company the the better they can scale their services. There's a lot of reasons that people are, are starting to find to use this stuff. I would say that most people who are you know running a few machines at home, uh, connected to the internet, unless they have a real interest in time, they're going to be perfectly happy running something like NTP. 
Um, and they're going to be running it in a client. So you know, they'll talk to whatever the nearest NTP server is in their area of the internet and they'll have, you know, time good down to under seconds. It'll certainly be far better than what the unregulated clock on their, uh, their machine will show. I do know that high frequency trading or flash traders are in the news recently. So I'm sure there'll be an increased interest in the accuracy of time for logs and other kinds of things, particularly as they try to detect fraud. So time may become uh, a more popular topic in, in these uh, recent months. Well, and it's not even just that. I mean, the, those people care about it for their own use. Um, but also you're seeing regulators come along and ask for really accurate results. So some of it's driven internally, I think, but also some of it's now being driven by, uh, you know, people like the SEC and, and people like that who want to be able to uh, correlate events at those businesses and therefore are asking for more and more accurate time from those businesses. And so those businesses will now have to do with it, deal with it, uh, not only because it's useful internally, but also for regulation. Well, it's all still magic to me somehow. But, uh, you know, I'm luckily one of those people who doesn't need accuracy beyond probably a second. And as long as my clock skews slowly so it doesn't jump over a cron job, I'm happy. <laughs> and so long as it doesn't run backwards. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Now, that's fascinating. That would be interesting to try. We, we do have, you know, speaking of sort of messing with time, we definitely have um, students in some of our schools that like to jump their clocks around. But that's to get around some security in the Apple store for apps that weren't supposed to be installed. I don't know. It's kind of weird, but then they, they move their clocks back and then all the SSL certificates break, but mm. that's beyond, um, you know, seconds, but you can see how when time gets off enough, a whole bunch of other things break, including SSL certificates. Well, and that, that all comes back to the happens before stuff from uh, Lamport's paper, right? Any distributed system, it's really important to know what happened before uh, and what the ordering of operations is. And that's, you know, the finer grained of that that you need, then the more accurate time you need. Yeah. Well, thank you. This has been, you know, fascinating. And, uh, you know, time is just one of those things we often don't think about, but clearly there's a lot of complexity to it. Yep. Good talking to you, Will. All right. Thank you. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. You can also find them on archive.org. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 240.